All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you here from New York City on the 20th day of February 2018. I always like to remind you that I'm the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, which you can subscribe to at MiningStocks.com, MiningStocks.com. Call our office in New York during normal work hours at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Also like to encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter, ChenPix.com. Uh, Chen has done exceptionally well over the years, uh, taking $5,400 in, uh, in an IRA account and uh, without any new money going into it. Uh, causing that uh, account to rise to $2.5 million over a 10-year period. So it's, uh, his track record is, is remarkable, not only there, but in other accounts that he's managed. So Chen Lin, it's chenpicks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also, encourage you to send your, crit- uh, your questions, criticisms, praises, comments, what have you, to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are on resources, Dynacore, Gold Mines, Genesis Metals Corp., New Range Gold Corp., Northern Empire Resources, Novo Resources, and Uranium Energy. I've titled today's show, Return of the Bond Vigilantes. What does it mean for the markets? Our main guest this week was supposed to be David Stockman, but because of an emergency that arose for him late today, I will be interviewing him on Friday and hope to have that interview posted at J. Taylor Media on Saturday. So uh, we'll talk to David about the Bond Vigilantes uh, on Friday, and and, uh, we'll send you out an email to let you know when it is posted at J. Taylor Media. Um, If you're not on our email list, uh, send a request to to be put on the list. Uh, Go to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Fortunately, I was able to have John Rubino join me today in the second half of today's show. He'll be discussing the Bond Vigilantes and his views uh, of the stock, bond, and commodity markets as well. Um, Here is the issue that the Treasury is faced with. Uh, the U.S. is running huge deficits. Got to finance them somehow. It's uh, lowered the interest rates below the market levels, and who wants to buy Treasuries? Well, they're finding there's a, you know, there's a mismatch between the demand and the supply because the markets are not allowed to, uh, or the markets have not been allowed to price capital, and so uh, the rates have to rise. It seems that that's the case when. Um, David, when David Stockman was the budget advisor to President Reagan uh, back in the early 1980s, the U.S. deficit was about a trillion dollars, a little less than that. Now it's exploding to over 20 trillion and rising even more rapidly under uh, Donald Trump, the way it looks anyway. 
Uh, and at this point in time, not even the Tea Party Republicans are spending are, are too concerned about uh, about holding the deficit down. Everyone seems to be spending money like drunken sailors in Washington. But who is going to buy the U.S. debt? That's the big key. And today uh, alone, I read there's 179 billion of Treasuries has to be funded by the end of this week. 258 billion. The Fed has backed away from quantitative easing, and uh, company countries like China, Japan, and others that had been enabling us to live live beyond our means for so many years are backing away. Seemingly, at least, especially Japan in the last few months has backed away from the U.S. Treasury market. So. Obviously, the rate of interest will have to rise uh, to find an equilibrium point if the U.S. is going to raise the capital that it needs to expand its empire and to finance socialism here. And, uh, you know, after all, we're in 160 different countries around the world expanding the empire. It costs money. Ultimately, empires in the past have uh, fallen when they've uh, gone beyond what they were able to do. We'll see what happens. Uh, The bottom line is that something here is going to have to give. Will the new chairman of the Fed, Jay Powell, give in and start printing money like like Greenspan, Bernanke, and Yellen have before him? Or will he actually um, pull a Paul Volcker and... um, and put his foot on the brakes and not allow new money, new money to be created, allow interest rates to find equilibrium. I, that's not fathomable to me and uh, to others that I've spoken to. How can interest rates rise so dramatically when there is so much debt and just a little bit of increase in debt increases the amount of treasuries that have to be borrowed simply to pay the debt, uh, the interest on the debt. So uh, it, it's going to be interesting to watch, uh, that's for sure. And, of course, uh, really pleased to have Uh, Eric Coffin is going to be joining me after the first commercial break today to give his views on the markets, but also some of his top uh, picks, the things that he's looking at. He is really an exploration expert, uh, and so we'll be talking to Eric Coffin. But right now, I'm really pleased to have Michael Oliver with me to give not his his opinions, his uh, gut feel, but basically... The results of his labor, his work, uh, that uh, objectively look at markets, and I think that's one of the big advantages that Michael brings. Not only is it objective, but it's been so darn accurate. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you here. You know, the U.S. Treasury, as I just mentioned, is borrowing huge amounts of money, and so the rates are rising. Um, You put out a very interesting uh, article today, again, uh, talking about... um, Talking about the Judas Goat. Talk to us about Judas Goat and what that's what that's all about, and how you're seeing the the bond markets now. Well, the um, the back in 1987, I recall, this is five years before I founded Momentum Structural Analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, I caught the crash, and um, the it was based on uh, my analysis of quarterly momentum of the S and P at the time. But during that time, something very interesting was going on that I always remembered. And that was that the bond market was going down, yields were going up. Uh-huh. And it was doing it in a persistent and fairly steep way. And the stock market was ignoring it and was ignoring it and mm-hmm. was ignoring it until finally the bonds <laughs> just put their foot to the pedal on the downside and then the S&P just crashed. And yeah. bonds rallied, I think, at 10 or 20 points in a few days. <laughs> uh, yeah. it, it, you know, yields dropped back down. But the bonds were just determined to take the stocks to slaughter. And I, I use the phrase Judas goat, which is a, you know, is a goat that has a purpose uh, to lead the other goats this way or that way, in this case to the downside. Now, if you'll recall, the S&P dropped over 200 points on February 5th and the 6th, yeah. you know, early this month. And that 200-point drop, the bonds turned and rallied four points. Mm-hmm. But then when the stocks turned back up, the bonds said, oh, 
Okay, not enough, huh? And so bonds went back down and made new lows. Now, mm-hmm. they're not making new lows at a, at, a, at a sharply or precipitous rate, but they're persistent in the downside. And they keep looking over their shoulder at stocks, and as long as stocks stay steady, I think the bonds are going to stay on the floor. And if need be, I think the bonds, the Judas Goat, will have another leg of decline here. I think ultimately we're going into the 120s on T-bond futures, which are now in mm. the low 140s. That's mm. about a four and a quarter percent yield, by the way, if we wow. get there. Um, but... Every time the stocks look like, oh, man, we're going to hang in here, the bonds say, okay, I'm back on the floor again. <laughs> and I think that it's, it's behaving like a Judas goat, and I think it's bound and determined to get to whatever level it takes to bring the stock market back down again, and this time to get it down you know, from a lower high than the prior high. Um, and so I, I think there's sort of a duel going on there. So we're watching bonds very closely here to see if there's not another three- to five-point drop uh, that can precipitate an S&P, another S&P sell-off. Uh, yeah. If it does that, I think the bonds will get a nice little short-term rally, probably very sharp, uh, you know, as a relief rally, a counter-trend mm-hmm. rally. Sure. Uh, it, it won't change the direction of rates. It'll just give some relief. But that's what I think is going on with bonds right now, is they're, they're watching stocks, and that's what they're keying off of with, right. with the determination to bring stocks down. Right. Uh, what about gold and treasury rates and interest rates? So, you know, there was a period of time, I'm old enough to remember it very vividly, in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, all the way up until, well, most of the time, since 1971 until about 2006 or so, interest, higher interest rates correlated with higher gold prices. That hasn't seemed to be the case now. So when we get higher rates, people are expecting gold to go down. Today it was down, I don't know, 15, 20 bucks or so on higher rates with this big treasury uh, demand. What are your thoughts well, on gold relative well, to interest rates? if you rates? look at bonds, though, from a, a, a broader point of view, uh, if you go back to mid-2016, when T-bond futures were at 176, okay, we're now at 143. Gold was at 1050. It's now at 1320s, 1330s. Yeah, that's right. So in the bigger perspective, it's they are moving Opposites, bonds go down and yields go up. Gold is rising. Yeah, that's true. Uh, now, in the real short term, yes, I agree. There's some days in here where it looks like bonds and gold are behaving the same. Uh, and, and I think to some extent that the gold market is looking for the next shaking of investor confidence in stocks because I think it will get the benefit of that. Because mm-hmm. gold is, after all, yes, we're down 20 bucks today, but we're down $20 or so, which is a couple percent off the high of the last two to three years, which was right. the highest tra- trade of the last two, three years was 1370-something. So we got up at the 1360 a week ago, and yeah. right now we're 1320. So we're several percent off the highs of the last several years, so it's not that bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not at, at 1180, okay? So, right. Um, it's a bit confusing because the short term sometimes can make you think there's a correlation one way. In fact, when you stand back and look at a year, year and a half's worth of action, you see that, in fact, it's the other way. As rates yeah. go up, gold has been going up. Very good point, Michael. With just a couple of minutes left, we had one listener uh, asking about natural gas. I know you're, you're generally bullish on the commodities in spite of rising rates, but mm-hmm. what, are you, uh, what, what are your thoughts on natural gas, if, if you well, have some? Of the energy sector, if I had to pick one that had the greatest potential for percent gain from current mm-hmm. levels. Now remember, yeah. oil's had a big move over the last year and a half. 
just above three dollars, and I won't get real specific about the number we do in our reports. Uh, sure. You can close out a month at a certain level above three dollars. I think you could shoot natural gas up to four fifty. Now, four fifty historically is not all that high either for natural gas, but that's a fifty percent move. Mm-hmm. So yes, we're watching natural gas. Uh, our prime focus right now is on the grains. We think the grains yeah. are in unison, ready to explode. But natural gas in the energy sector looks like the potential for the biggest percentage gain over a short period of time, assuming it can cross the hurdle. And we've defined the hurdle, and we're watching it closely. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, just just make a note here that on this day when most asset prices are are, are getting clobbered, uh, the grains, um, many of them quite strong, and I see the meats are very strong in the futures markets well, today well, as yeah, well. So I mean, this area that we think is uh, ready. We think the food commodities are going to lead this year in the commodity sector, uh, with the possible exception of gold. Uh, but uh, oil's had a big move for the last year and a half, so is copper. We tend to think, well, they, they'll continue firm. They're not going to be the leaders anymore. Okay. Leadership will shift to uh, food commodities. All right, very interesting. Well, thanks again, Michael, for being with us, and uh, always a pleasure talking to you and Thank getting you, your Jake. insights into these markets. Well, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Eric Coffin will be with me. He's one of the best there is at picking early-stage exploration stocks. If you want to make a lot of money percentage-wise in, uh, in the junior mining sector, if you can latch on to the right early exploration stocks, that's where you make it. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Eric Coffin. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project. Located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest-grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well-financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX symbol NRG. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay Project, located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource, outlined by drilling thus far, stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor.com 
at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again a friend of mine, Eric Coffin. I've known Eric for many years. Uh, he not only brings an exceptional level of integrity with him, but he also has a huge amount of experience in analyzing the prospects of early stage exploration projects. And that's important because if you can pick the stocks that have great upside potential when they are selling for a few pennies, the upside, at least in terms of uh, percentage terms, uh, it can be phenomenal. So Eric is as good as anyone I know at picking early stage uh, stories. So, And he's also the co-founder of the Metals Investor Forum, which is held several times a year in Vancouver. This year, for the first time, it will be in Toronto, right before the PDAC, and uh, I will be attending that, uh, speaking there and inviting a few of my favorite companies there, and Eric, of course, will also be there uh, with some of his favorite picks. So I suggest that uh, if you're around the PDAC and can go there, it's uh, on Saturday, the day before the PDAC starts, uh, that you go to jtaylormedia or miningstocks.com, click on the link, on the Metals Investor Forum link and register because these things tend to sell out and then sometimes there's not enough chairs for all of the people that want to sit down. So uh, go to J. Taylor Media, Mining Stocks, and sign up for the Metals Investor Forum. It's going to be held at the Delta Hotel in Toronto. It's uh, very close to the convention center where the PDAC is being held. Eric, thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me again, Jay, and, and your your advice on the... Uh RSVPing is is good because the, the list for MIF is starting to get fairly full. So uh, those those that want to attend, you probably don't want to wait too long to uh, make sure your name's on the list because we do we do normally end up closing that list in advance of the event. Yeah, and I imagine with the PDAC and all that, there's probably a lot of latecomers too. So um, anyway, uh, it, it's shaping up well, and you've got to have what about twenty? How many companies will be there about? Uh, Matt squeezed in as many as he could. I think it's close. Yeah. To, I think it's close to twenty. I mean, it's it's going to yeah. be a, on a one day event. It's just a one day. day, but we are we are going to feed you and we are going to give you free alcohol at the end to uh, kind of help take away the pain. So <laughs> we hope there's not too much pain. We hope there's some gain. Although today the markets are a little bit difficult. I think there's something you called the PDAC curse in the past. It's yeah. been sort of. I, I guess the markets have been kind of weak right after that early March event. The biggest mining uh, show, I think, probably in North America. Am I right about that, Eric? Oh, it's in, in the in the world. I mean, the PDAC in the world, even yeah. Oh yeah, by, by far. Yeah, yeah. the, the PDAC, the normal reg- normal registration these days for PDAC is about twenty five thousand people. It's, it's a yeah. big show. Yeah, it is huge. It's absolutely huge, and. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a can't-miss show if you're in this business, that's for sure. Well, um, today the U.S. government is uh, going to market, it's uh, in the process, I guess, of marketing $179 billion of treasuries. It's got to raise uh, that amount of money in the markets, and by the end of the week, $258 billion uh, needs, to be, needs to be raised. Um, so what are your thoughts about the macroeconomic picture now in light of that, Eric? And, you know, raising, raising right, rates... Rates have to go up in order to attract the capital, especially since the Fed isn't printing money anymore, and especially since some countries like China and especially more recently Japan is pulling back for its own reasons from Treasury. So how, how do you think that's going to impact the things that you and I follow so closely, our, our gold shares, for example? Well, you know, we, we went through this long period where there was there was enough uncertainty and, and enough, as, as they 
as they euphemistically call it in Washington, excess savings overseas. <laughs> yeah. uh, some of which are being, like you said, are being pulled back now. That it was it. No, it seemed no matter what the Fed country, they never really had a lot of trouble selling these things. And I, I think you've got two things going on at the same time, or at least I think there are, that are making things a little more difficult. One is we're starting to see concerns about inflation again. I'm not, I'm not yet completely sold on that, although I agree it's probably going to come up a little bit this year at least. Uh, you know, maybe it accelerates, but right now I don't expect to see a big move in inflation. But when you've got 10-year rates at, at you know, 2.8%, inflation doesn't have to move much for those rates to get pulled right along with it. Right. The other thing happening, as you mentioned, is supply. And, I mean, I was surprised, you know, we just went through a, a correction, which I'm not convinced is over on the S&P. And part of what drove that was inflation concerns. But I, I wondered myself at the time how much of it was guys on the bond market saying, you know, let's look at this new tax cut thing that just got passed. Let's look at this infrastructure plan that Trump's going to try to push through now. It's, you know, the deficits in Washington are going to be very large. And that's based on, you know, that's based on the uh, OMB scoring, which I think is a farce. Um, anyone yeah. outside of Washington thinks it's a farce. No one really expects them to pull off the, the, the slow deficit reduction that's outlined in that plan. I, I think anybody outside of Washington expects those deficits to go the other way and just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I, I think the bond market's starting to get a little worried about, you know, who's going to eat all this supply. Uh, and I think on top of that, you had, a, you had this burst of enthusiasm as the tax cuts were passed and everybody was going, you know, the, the economy is accelerating, everything's fantastic. But I, I'm sure you saw the last couple of big, or what I consider the last couple of big metrics out of the U.S., and the one that really got my attention was not the CPI, which was the slight increase that was expected. What really got my attention was the retail sales, which was terrible. The retail yeah. sales report was horrible. That's uh, right. It went from expectations of a, a reasonable, you know, like a 0.3% growth in sales, and then up being negative, but more to the point, the December one, that was a really strong report initially. They got everybody excited. That one also was taken back to zero. Mm. And the, mm. the, the, core, the core retail sales rate, the one that's actually used in the GDP calculation, that one went from being, I think, positive 0.3 to negative 0.2. So that's kind of lost. That, that basically comes right out of the GDP calculation. So I'm thinking now this acceleration everybody was talking about, I'm not so sure that acceleration is going to happen. Yeah. And my concern, and I think the reason, in my mind, why we're not seeing those sales increases is we're not really seeing the, you know, as they, as they like to call it in Washington during the 80s, we're not seeing the trickle down yet. You yeah. Know, like 1% could all these big tax cuts and stuff, but unless that trickles down and your average Joe or Jane sees these wage increases, where's the retail sales coming from? I mean, yeah. Most of the U.S. economy is consumer spending, and, and if the income income growth isn't being generated, you know where's the growth come from? That's seventy percent of the economy right there. Right. If you're not getting right. consumption growth. I, I don't see where this acceleration is going to come. From. I just don't. Yeah. See it. Well, I guess there's some hope that the tax cuts will will help a little bit, but I agree with you, Eric. I think a very tepid, uh, and that should really bode well for a more accommodative monetary policy. You would think. 
But on the other hand, uh, when the deficit in the red ink runs so deep, you know, the, the deficit does have to be financed, at least to an extent. It has to be financed one way or another, or else people are going to start losing confidence in the currency, and then you're in really big trouble. So it's going to be interesting, that's for sure. But let's turn to a couple of your favorites, um, Adamera Minerals. I mean, in a, in a day in which most of the juniors are not doing all that well, it's performing pretty well, and I think on, on the back of some apparent good news, or at least uh, a drill drill intercept or so that was reported last week that looks like it could be really good news. Could you talk to us about that? Yeah. I mean, they, Adam Air is a company I've followed for a while. They started a new, they started a new drill program a couple of weeks ago. This was a target. It's because the target's called SE1 and SE just stands for Southeast. It's in the Southeast portion of their holdings. This target was uh, the biggest, was the strongest anomaly that was generated by this big geophysical airborne survey they flew over a year ago. Uh, Mark Kolobaba, who's the, G, the, the geo and the CEO of Atomera, he's always loved this target. It just took him forever and a day to get drill permitting from the U.S. Forest Service. Um, he does have it now, and it appears that they're very accommodative after having thrown up roadblocks for a year. So they finally managed to get a drill on that. They reported uh, the first hole last week, and there's no assays. Um, I believe I, I believe they just finished sending samples from this hole in, so we probably won't see assays for a week or two. But it was it was significant enough that he felt he had to put out something. And what he hit with his drill hole was roughly 120 meters of semi-massive to massive sulfides and silica flooding. He sent me a bunch of core pictures. It's it's beautiful core. I mean. It's the type of thing that it's very easy to get jacked up about this. The one caveat I will tell people is that this is a gold property. This is not an area and this is not a mineralization style where you're going to see any gold. The only way you're going to find out whether it's got gold in it is to send it to the lab, which is where it is now. So maybe this has got gold, maybe it isn't. But what's got people excited is, one, the scale of it. 120 meters is a very thick intercept. Um, I talked to Mark this morning He's going to have a, I think he's going to have a release out in an hour or two, but it's, the next release he's putting out is something he's been threatening to put out for a month, which is a sort of a, what I did in my summer vacation release. Because <laughs> the things being slow with the permitting and everything, I think his shareholders got frustrated. And I said, you know, you should put out a release and just walk through everything you did, because they were actually really busy. They did a huge amount of work and mm-hmm. advanced a lot of targets. This is only one. But I, I think... I think this is a really good drill speculation. I don't know if there's any gold in this hole. If there is, with that kind of an intercept, the stock's going to go crazy. But more to the point, this is not the only target they're drilling. This drill phase, they should be drilling three or four different targets. And a couple of the other ones, uh, one of them is called Key West. Another one's called Overlook. Those targets that they're drilling are either direct extensions of zones that were mined in the past or on-trend extension of the zones that were mined in the past where they, they don't know it's the same zone, but they're pretty sure it is. That was simply never tested in the past. So I don't, I don't think there's, there's very little chance that these guys are going to strike out in this drill phase. They're, they're going to get a couple of good drill holes. What I'm hoping is they get a couple of good drill holes and a great drill hole here. Um, they have apparently just finished the second hole at this SE1 target. I think we'll see some reporting on that in a couple of days. But again, it's not going to be assays. It's going to be this is what it looked like and this is what it means. But the comment that I got from Mark was he thinks Martin St-Pierre, the geophysicist, uh, he said, I'm pretty sure Mark was very accurate with his dip measurement on this zone before we drilled it. 
And what that means is this 120-meter intercept is probably actually pretty close to true width. They didn't drill down yeah. something. They, oh. they were they were targeting to drill perpendicular, and he said, I think it was pretty much perpendicular to the zone. So it's, wow. it's a big zone. Well, it's, uh, it's certainly 120 meters, and if it's if it's mineralized with anything uh, you know significant at all, I think this stock could really, really fly. There's only, well, there are 125 million shares, but it's uh, selling at, um, I think, around 18 cents Canadian today. It's up a little bit in a bad market, $23 million market cap. You can buy it down here in the States, as I have, under the symbol DDNEF, and then in uh, Toronto, ADZ. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is a stock that's actually doubled over the last couple of months, Eric, in a market that hasn't been all that good. So I think this is really, this is a typical uh, Eric Coffin uh, play, folks, and, and, you know, pay attention to what he has to say. Eric, we have time for one more uh, today. San Marco is another one that I bought, thanks to your recommendation. Uh, Trades in Toronto, SMN, SMREF in the States, 66.3 million shares, 19 cents earlier today in Canadian money. 12 and a half of 12.6 million market cap. Also a baby, but really some, I think, tremendous upside potential here. A huge anomaly that they're uh, that they're finding there in, in Mexico, right? At least on one of their properties. Yeah. Well, they've got they actually have two areas, two separate areas on properties that are, I mean, adjacent to each other essentially. Yeah. One is called 1068. That's a porphyry target. Uh, porphyries are big, low grade, you know, copper gold molly systems. Most of the world's copper gets mined out of porphyry deposits. They found this thing, and it's a new discovery. Nobody knew about this before they came along. They found this last year, and what they initially found was what's called the litho cap, and that's the litho cap is just this alteration zone that sits on top of these systems, mm-hmm. and it normally doesn't have much in it itself. It's fairly dead. Geologists can recognize that it's a litho cap, but they don't know really what's under it. They did manage to find rooting around, literally, in and out of the arroyos, they found a couple of spots where the underlying uh, uh, phyllic uh, zone, and the phyllic zone is what's, that's normally where the ore is in one of these systems. They did actually find a couple of spots where it poked out of the ground. They got nice grades there. They got like 0.5, 0.6, 0.7 copper, 0.2, gold, which is high for that region. Uh, what I'm expecting to see you know, imminently, because I know it's done, and I know they got the report, so that we should see a report out like any time now on, on an IP survey. IP is induced polarization. It's the system that was actually designed to find porphyries. Uh, and what they're trying to find is a nice big chargeability anomaly. And it's the sulfides, the, the calcopyrite and the pyrite sort of lights these things up. Uh, I assume that the geophysicists will have said, you know, based on my survey, I think you should drill here, here, and here. I'm sure these guys have their own ideas. I know there's been at least three or four major companies on this property in the last month or two. Like, they're, they're getting a lot of interest from majors. They do have the money to drill it themselves. It's either going to be drilled by them or by one of these majors, I think, fairly soon, because there's really nothing else to do now. It's, it's, it's basically ready to go. The property yeah. next door called Kunaba, they found this new zone like a month ago, very weird, relatively high copper grades and silver at surface, They've taken a whole bunch of uh, grab samples off of off of outcrops. There's not lots of outcrops sticking out, but they sampled what they could. Um, I'm expecting a couple of things on that one. Uh, Bob said they did have crews in there trying to find larger outcrop areas where they could do longer samples and at least give people some kind of, you know, this much over X meters. There should be a bunch of that in the lab. That should be coming soon. 
the closest thing I can find to, to this deposit type or what this looks like is it's what's called a manto. Um, this isn't a manto deposit, but there's things like this in South America. There's several of them in Chile. Uh, they were sort of the copper deposit type before porphyries came along. And these, these deposits range from 30, 40, 50 million tons, but they, they're usually like about a percent copper, and they usually got a bunch of silver in them. I mean, they're nice deposits. And there's, there's a bunch of other stuff going on in Trinabot, too. I mean, there's a lot of targets on these two properties. They do have the money to drill. Bob told me last week they still have a million and a half in the bank. So either, either San Marco or Major or probably both will be drilling both of these things in the next month or two. And I, both of these are targets that have the potential to deliver, you know, really big holes. And porphyries, when you make a porphyry discovery, where you really want to be there is during the first drill phase because when they, when they report the first, you know, multi-hundred-meter intercepts, that's when a, a company exploring a porphyry really goes nuts. Right, right. So um, anyway, we're just basically out of time. I know we wanted to talk about silver, silver crest metals as well. Uh, 54.7 million shares of stock uh, trading. It's uh, what about a buck or so? I can't remember exactly what the price is. Uh, another one. In, how, how much, Eric? It's closer to two. Yeah. Two dollars, yeah, in in Canadian money. Um, so. Uh, another one that you like a lot. We unfortunately don't have time to talk about it today, but um, I, it, Eric, your website or people where people can go to uh, sign up for your letter is HRA. What is it now? If I forgot HRA to write it down. Advis- HRAadvisory.com. HRAadvisory.com. Folks, do yourself a favor and uh, go there. Learn about it. It's a very reasonably priced letter and uh, a lot of great ideas. Uh, should have Eric on the show more often because uh, I buy a lot of things that Eric recommends because I know uh, the good work he does and he puts a lot of his heart and soul and a lot of sweat into these things. So, um, and you're still talking but, to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I've done very well with your stocks, Eric, and I'm, and I'm very pleased with it. So um, thanks again for joining us, and we do need to do it more often. I look forward to seeing you up there in Toronto as well. Yeah, we should, yeah. Yeah, don't forget, Jay's one of the presenters at MIF and uh, – that's reason enough to fly up all by itself. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe uh, for some people. Well, thanks, Eric, and thanks for that. And, and uh, we'll look to see you in Toronto and have you back again soon. Folks, don't go away. John Rubino is going to be with me, and uh, he, he'll replace David Stockman, who had was not able to be here, unfortunately, today. Uh, but uh, John will be with me right after the break, so don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. 
Uranium Energy Corps. NYSE Market, UEC, is a leader in the coming bull market in uranium, with spot uranium up more than 40% in two months. The new bull market is just starting. UEC has the cash, the licensed resources, the permitted processing center, the advanced technology, and the experienced team to lead this market. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting uraniumenergy.com. NYSE Market, UEC. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and the Good Times. I am pleased to have with me once again John Rubino. Uh, John runs the popular financial website dollarcollapse.com. He's the author uh, with Gold Money's James Turk uh, on uh, a book called uh, The Money Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops. He's written many other uh, books as well, and he is uh, an author, uh, writes for some prestigious um, uh, prestigious publications such as thestreet.com. He's also writes uh, for uh, the CFA magazine and, and other such uh, prestigious publications. Thank you for joining me again, John. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Good to be back, and thank you so much for stepping in. Uh, I was so grateful to you uh, for being able to take David Stockman's place today, and also thanks so much for uh, hosting my show a couple of weeks ago. It allowed me to make a trip to Nevada and visit a very interesting gold mining project there. So thanks, thanks very much for all of that. You know, we've titled today's show, Return of the Bond Vigilantes, What Does It Mean for the Markets? And uh, maybe we'd just like to ask you to uh, define a bond vigilante and, and what purpose do they serve? Well, sure. Uh, back in um, normal times, <laughs> which is to say pre-1990s, uh, the bond market what was kind of a, a limiting factor on financial mismanagement on the part of governments because uh, what you know once governments started borrowing too much money or encouraging their citizens to borrow too much money um, the people who would normally buy bonds would lose their interest in something that uh, that pays a fixed number of pieces of currency year mm-hmm. after year because the assumption would be that uh, all this debt that's being taken on by the rest of the, the country would make the currency less valuable. You know, we'd have to create a lot of new dollars to pay off all the interest on the new debt we're taking on. Um, and that would make the bond market skittish. Bond prices would go down, interest rates would go up, and that would stop the, uh, you know, the aggressive leveraging of the government in its tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, that stopped in the 1990s when... Um, when you know we were taking on huge amounts of debt, mostly via the dot-com bubble at the time, 
And the Fed was still intervening aggressively to stop any kind of a little, uh, you know, incipient crisis in the market. They did it over and over again. Right. And by doing so, they sent the, mar- the market a message that uh, don't worry, go ahead and keep buying bonds because the central bank is going to keep pushing interest rates down no matter what. And so we had a, um, a stretch of 30 some years since the 80s to basically last year in which interest rates went down every year. And so the the bond vigilantes were basically hamstrung. The the bond Uh market was no longer a a limit on the amount of debt that a system could take on. And, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, we took on immense amounts of debt while that was going on. You know, once once we didn't have any any adult supervision from the bond market, the rest of the economies of the world, and it's not just the US, it's all the major economies of the world took on unprecedented um, one would say crazy amounts of debt, which you know puts us where we are now in uh, in a situation where we're so fragile that any kind of a crisis, whether it's exogenous, you know, some kind of geopolitical thing, or within the markets, a, um, a garden variety bear market in equities where they drop twenty percent, um, anything like that is systemically threatening now. And that should be terrifying to everybody who has money at risk because, you know, you get stuff like that every once in a while. There will be a war. I'll go out on a limb and say there will be a really scary war in the next decade and that there will be extreme fluctuations in the financial markets this year, as we're seeing already, and going forward. You know, and that that kind of stuff used to be something that the markets could handle. Probably not anymore. And so that's a, a huge change if you've got any money at risk, because now it's really at risk. John, how is it that the U.S. could behave that way, that the central banks around the world could behave that way? How is it uh, that they're, they have been able to defy the natural laws of supply and demand for money? Uh, uh, it doesn't, I mean, how, how is it that confidence has been maintained when you've had U.S. deficit for the U.S. debt, for example, going up for from somewhere less than a trillion dollars when David Stockman was at with with Ronald Reagan in, in 1980 uh, to 20 trillion and rising very rapidly now. Yeah, well, you, you can trace it back to 1971 when we broke the final link between gold and the world's fiat currencies. You know, it used to be that money was a real thing. You know, it was gold. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to, say, wage a big war or radically increase um, some kind of social spending or pretty much anything else that cost a lot of money, you had to go out and get gold somehow. And it's not easy to do that. You have to dig it out of the ground. And, you know, traditionally, we get about 2% more gold each year by doing that, which limits the supply of that kind of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so we had low inflation for most of the past several centuries because the the supply of the base money, gold, was only rising at 2% a year. Um, In 1971, we we did away with that. Governments wanted more flexibility to be able to to massively increase military spending, for instance, in the case of the U.S., or to dramatically increase entitlements, also in the case of the U.S., but also everybody else in the world. Uh, And so they did that. Now, the central banks at that point, when they have pure fiat currencies, are armed with you know, effectively unlimited credit cards. They can make as much new currency as they want to. And, and so since the time that we became pure fiat currencies, the central banks have intervened in the markets using this unlimited printing press 
to distort normal market mechanisms. You know, the, we started with the bond vigilantes here. They, they, uh, they basically shut down the bond vigilantes by creating trillions and trillions of dollars and euros and yen and buying back bonds with them, which pushed the price of bonds down, which means it doesn't matter if the markets are a little bit skittish about inflation and they're selling their bonds. The central banks are there to buy them at ever lower interest rates at ever higher prices. And gradually, people have gotten used to that. They started to think that that's the new normal in the world, where central banks basically just control what used to be free markets. And so stocks will always go up, home prices will always go up, bond prices will always go up, which is to say interest rates will always go down, or at least they'll stay at really favorable low levels. So why not borrow as much as you can get a hold of? You know, If interest rates are super low and the Fed is going to maintain stability in the markets, Borrow a ton of money, you know, because mm-hmm. you'll be able to pay it back at these, especially at these lower interest rates. So the, the whole world basically has gone on a debt binge since then. And that's how they've been able to get away with it. We think the central banks are omnipotent, that they can maintain um, 2017 levels of financial stability forever. But what we're finding out lately is that maybe that's not true. You know, all of a sudden, the stock market is bouncing around really dramatically. Bonds are starting to go down pretty hard as interest rates go up. You know, you know, we're down. Uh, I think about two hundred and seventy points on the Dow today, Jay. As, right. As we're yes, talking. I noticed. Uh huh. And you know, three months ago, a two hundred and seventy point move on the Dow would have been really remarkable. It would have had people, uh, you know, sitting up and paying attention. And now it, it, it's like, oh, you know, it's not even five hundred points, and certainly not a thousand points. So it's it's just. You know, random noise. Who cares? That's how much um, volatility we've gotten into the market just in the last couple of months, and that's how quickly everybody's gotten used to this volatility. Right. But, well, let's uh, explore some of the ways and some of the reasons why the Fed may not be omnipotent and omniscient. Why, in fact, uh, there may be some limits to what the Fed can do and how far they can manipulate markets. Why it is maybe just maybe that the natural laws of economics have not been overcome by, you know, these brilliant guys from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale that, uh, that run our country and run our banking system. What, let's, what are some of the reasons? I mean, one of the things I can think of right away, John, is that you have malinvestment that's caused when you don't allow the capital to be priced correctly, when you don't allow price uh, discovery of capital, you push the price of capital down, then you have something the Austrians refer to as malinvestment, when money goes into all kinds of things that, that don't make really any economic sense. Is that one of the, one of the problems that, that the system is going to be facing now? You have, uh, you have all, of the, the, all of this capital put into places that don't, that don't really provide great returns. Yes. <laughs> the short answer is emphatically yes. Uh, what happens when you make money too cheap? is that uh, people misread the signal that you're sending. You know, mm-hmm. if, if banks want to lend you money at extremely low interest rates, normally that's kind of energizing, right, for anybody. Uh, and your, your tendency is to say, well, you know, if they think I'm such a good credit, let me borrow this money and I'll find something to do with it. So you, you get the whole world basically doing that when, when everybody's pushed interest rates down to really low levels. And then you get things like uh, in China, for instance, Ghost cities, where they build they build entire cities because they have access to the uh, the funds at uh, very cheap rates, mm-hmm. and nobody lives there now. You know, and the same thing with airports and highways. They they went on this infrastructure building binge over the last decade, uh, which caused them to quintuple their total amount of debt in the system, and they probably didn't get a good deal because they built a lot of things that will never generate the kind of cash flow necessary to pay off the debt. 
and, and that's true everywhere. If you look at, uh, for instance, the corporate sector in the U.S., uh, corporations have borrowed record amounts of money. But instead of doing productive stuff with it, in other words, building a new factory that will produce something that will generate massive cash flow and pay that debt off with no trouble, they've been buying back their stock. Yeah. We're paying dividends. And, and so what's happening now is the stock price is up somewhat, which makes the rich people who own the stock and the corporate executives who own a lot of the stock even richer than they were. But you've got this company that's saddled with huge amounts of debt, you know, record amounts of debt, eight years into a recovery. You know, economic expansions don't normally last more than six years. <laughs> and, and then there's a recession to, to flush out all the malinvestment that happens towards the end of a recovery. Well, we're, we're um, towards the end of one of the longest recoveries ever, and corporations are borrowing record amounts of money to buy back their own stock at record high prices. Now that, uh, uh, you know, you can, you can think through the implications of that and see that that's a big problem for a lot of corporations, which we don't realize. You know, we're not recognizing that in the, in the company's stock price because the stock price is being pushed out up by all the money that companies are borrowing to buy more stock. But once the economy turns down or once interest rates go up, and it's no longer a good deal for companies to start or to keep borrowing money to buy back their stock, then that huge buying pressure that's there now will disappear, stock prices will go back down, and these companies will be stuck with uh, all the debt that they took on, but assets in the form of the equity that they bought back that's only worth half as much. Yeah. So they're going to they're gonna be looking at a you know 50% loss on what is probably, in a lot of cases for these guys, their biggest activity. You know, buying back stock is the biggest thing they do now. And when that happens, they're going to look like badly managed hedge funds rather than brilliantly managed industrial companies. Right. Uh, and so yep. their stock prices will just go down. You know, it'll be like a death spiral where where stock price drops because of the recession. And then we see all the problems that this company actually has laid bare and we sell the stock some more and it drops even further. Uh, that's out there. That will happen yeah. in the next few years. Yeah, what, what is the saying? When the tide goes out, you find out who's swimming naked or something like that? Yes. So, yeah. so then you have, and the other thing, John, is that you have this enormous amount of debt. I mean, people, we don't, as you said, we, you know, gold used to be money, um, still is, but it was, it was legal tender in the United States. And so uh, it was an asset-based money, whereas now it's a liability-based money. So all the debt is still there. It's not, I mean, most of it, I guess, every now and then goes through bankruptcy and gets forgiven or gets disappears that way. But for the most part, you have this exponential growth in debt, and then you have the compounding effect of that, and even under low rates now, low rates of interest. You know, I've noticed a, a chart the other day that showed uh, just, you know, even, even as rates were falling, U.S. debt, uh, Treasury debt, was going up fairly significantly, and now as rates are starting to rise... I mean, can you imagine, Michael Oliver was telling us that he's expecting, his, his work is suggesting very strongly that we're going to see four and a quarter on the 30-year. Can you imagine, I don't know, you know, on, on shorter duration, there will be lower rates probably, but do you see, what is this going to mean for the Treasury? And then we have a new Treasury, we have a new, um, uh, we have a new guy at the Fed, Jay Powell. What, is, what do you think he's going to do? What, do you think he'll handle things any differently than Janet Yellen might have or Ben Bernanke when, when push comes to shove, when we, you know, as this rate rises, as rates rise, which I think they inevitably will because there's a shortage of capital to meet the enormous amount of indebtedness that our government is uh, piling up. Um, 
how do you think, do you have an opinion on how Jay Powell may handle this? And, and you know, what do you think the outcome is going to be here? Well, whoever's running the Fed, first of all, they all come from, from the same pool of people, right? right. Who, who talk every day and who agree on everything. So what the new Fed leadership will do will be identical to what the old Fed leadership did in the previous crisis, except it'll have to be a lot bigger because the numbers are a lot bigger. You know, we, we owe way more. So in order to monetize that debt, we've got to create even more currency. Um, so when this happens, we'll see quantitative easing um, on a scale that, uh, that dwarfs what we had before. We'll see interest rates go not just to zero, but sharply negative in a lot of the major countries. Um, there, there was at one point, what, what was it, $30 trillion or something like that of, of negative yielding sovereign debt? Mm. out there in the world. Um, And now there's much less because interest rates are starting to go up into positive territory. And that is the embedded time bomb in this kind of a system because everybody's deeply in debt. And in a lot of cases, they borrowed very short term in order to get the lowest rate, you know, because short term rates were even lower than extremely low long term rates for the past few years. So you got all these governments that have to roll over trillions of dollars a year every year of just their existing debt at the same time they're borrowing new money. So if interest rates go up, you get a double whammy. The debt you roll over costs you more and the new debt that you take on costs more than the old debt did. Uh, And so your interest costs start to ratchet up. And we're we're not talking just, you know, a a few hundred billion dollars here or there. We're talking trillions of dollars of new interest costs that are embedded in a system where the the long bond does what you were saying. If it goes over 4%, Mm -hmm. um, that sounds existentially threatening when you look at the numbers. Um, So there's a number out there, Jay, on on the 10-year or the 30-year bond that Mm -hmm. blows up the system. And we don't know what that yield number is. Maybe it's 3% on the, the 10-year bond. Maybe it has to go to 4%. Um, if it goes to 5%, the numbers become so forbidding that I, I think the number is before 5%. But somewhere out there is an interest rate number that blows up the system. And, and it is probably not that far away based on the amount of debt that we've taken on. So um, the, the short takeaway from all of this is that the volatility we've seen lately is just a taste of what's to come. It's going to be much more extreme before this plays out. And at some point in time, uh, you know, your website is dollarcollapse.com. Uh, it's there, you've named it that for a reason. Your view is at some point in time, confidence comes into play. At what point in time do people stop believing that these brilliant uh, PhDs from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale that run our country, run our our banking system, are not omniscient, are not omnipotent. When do people? I mean, at some point, I maybe when when the system blows up, what what happens then? And and do we, you know, do we run into a hyperinflationary event or a deflationary implosion? What's your best guess? Well, it could be either of those because immense amounts of debt can lead either way. You know, you could have a 1930s style collapse when we get rid of the debt by defaulting on it, or you can have a Weimar Germany style hyperinflation that gets you out from under the debt by inflating it away. You know, you still pay off your debts, but you're paying it off in currency that's worth, you know, one thirtieth of, of what the original currency was. Um, it, it's clear that we're going to try to engineer a, a, a big devaluation. That's that's what we're going for now. Everybody's mm-hmm. trying to make their fiat currencies worth less and less each year in the hope that that keeps them ahead of their mounting debts. 
the, the huge danger there is that people figure it out. You know, when, once everybody realizes that it's the policy of the government to make the money in their bank accounts and the money in their wallet and under their mattress and buried in the tin can in the backyard worth less each year, nobody wants to hold that money anymore. It makes sense to borrow as much as possible and then to convert all that money that you get into real stuff that governments can't inflate away. So the, the Austrian School of Economics calls that a crack up boom. And we, we've created the classic conditions for that to happen. And then it just becomes a question of timing, right? Is it this year, next year, five years from now? We can't know that. But we, we can say with a high degree of certainty that something pretty terrible is going to come from this much borrowing because we've got 3,000 years of history with absolutely no exceptions in which countries that borrow too much money had a gigantic financial crisis involving their currency. You know, that's happened over and over again. So there's no reason to think that it won't happen this time around. Yeah. You know, we're just about out of time, but I have to think here that, you know, you, you're talking about when people figure it out. It, it, right now, it seems like the safest thing in the world. Governments are are increasing their um, their money supply to try to beat this thing. Uh, and gold is one of the few places, one of the most logical places to go. Uh, I guess at some point in time, people lose confidence, then velocity kicks in. Then you could go over to the hyperinflation side, John. We're 30 seconds. We're out of money. We're out of time here. Okay, hyperinflation this time around, or mass devaluation or crack-up boom, you know, whatever term you want to use for it, uh, will manifest as the, the value of the dollar and the euro in the end starting to go down big against real things, which means the price of real things will go up. Gold and silver will go parabolic while this is happening. Yeah. $100 updates for gold, $10 updates for silver regularly for a while. Yeah. It'll be fun to watch from a gold bug's perspective. Yeah, but not not a very safe environment for sure. So thank you, John, for being with us today um, on that unhappy note in a way. Uh, but it's always good to, to have you with us to get your thoughts on these very important issues. So thanks very much for being with us. Well, folks, that is all the time we have this week. Next week, Dr. Quentin Henning of Novo Resources will be with me. Alistair McLeod is scheduled to be a guest. And with a little bit of luck, we'll also have Michael Oliver back with us. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.